Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. My guests come from all walks of life and are people who get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is where they become curious, then enter the rabbit hole into discovery, some through scholarly research, others through pop culture documentaries and other podcasts. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to like and subscribe. It really does help to spread the word. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Armchair Historians is an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron through Patreon or buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. Anne-Marie here. I'd like to start out by thanking all of our Patreon and Kofi supporters. I mean it when I say I couldn't produce this podcast without you. Not too long ago, I had the opportunity to talk to Emily Strasser. Now, Emily has written a book about a little-known community built in secret by the United States government in rural western Knoxville, Tennessee. You see, Oak Ridge was one of three secret cities constructed by the Manhattan Project. If you listened to last week's episode about Anna Rosenberg, there is a tie-in here. Anna Rosenberg negotiated a hush-hush deal between then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt and the tens of thousands of workers attracted to Oak Ridge, eager for the high-paying wartime jobs it offered. In this episode, Emily talks to me about her book, Half-Life of a Secret, Reckoning with a Hidden History, part history, part memoir, and part biography. You guys know how much I love shining light on those hidden histories. This one does not disappoint.
Emily Strasser, welcome to Armchair Historians. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm super excited about your book, Memoir and History. I do feel that history is a touchstone to a lot of meaningful conversations. And so I think that you naturally go there in your book. So, um, you know, because it really comes back to, I'm kind of going off on a tangent before I ask the question, but it always comes back to, history's impact on us, right? Mm -hmm. What is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? Okay. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this, this question. And, you know, it's interesting, because I think my book is about nuclear history, World War Two, the Cold War, these aspects of history that intersect with my family, and we can get more into that. But it's a very personal history. Those things are not things that I naturally am interested in. I wouldn't have gone out and like decided to write a book about nuclear weapons. You know, I was not a kid who was interested in that. So like, if I think about what are the histories I'm drawn to, naturally, they're going to come in different realms. So a history that I've been interested in recently is um, the history of like the medieval witch trials in Europe, when hundreds of thousands of women were um, tried and tortured um, for witchcraft. Um, and this is about, you know, sort of 15th, 16th, 17th centuries as we're moving from, you know, feudalism, Middle Ages to capitalism. And it coincides with a lot of um, a lot of the cruelties associated with capitalism, you know, and so that may seem like a big stretch. Um, but I think ultimately with history, what I'm interested in is the ways that we can trace how did we get here? How did we get to the lives we're living now? What does it mean to live a good life? And um, what are the what are the circumstances that came before us that have built the structures in which we're living now? And so that's where I sort of, that may be all a little bit abstract, but that's where I sort of understand the connection to my interest in sort of nuclear history comes from a very immediate place of examining like, my family and where I come from. How did we get here? What are the choices that we have been allowed to make? And what are the forces that came before us that have guided those choices? I think that it all comes back to this conversation that I like to uh, pinpoint in my interviews is history. How did we get here? What's the impact it has on us as a society? What's the impact it has on us as a family, which you go micro because you go into the family and you go into your own personal history. So it's not a stretch at all to me anyways. And I think my audience knows who I am and what I like to do. So it's not. And so let's, let's take that step over into your book, which is maybe tell us a little bit about the book, it, the name of it, kind of what it's about. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah. So it's called Half-Life of a Secret Reckoning with a Hidden History. And it grew out of a memory from childhood. And this is not a spoiler because it happens on the first page, first paragraph. I would sleep in my grandmother's house. She lived in East Tennessee in a small town on a lake under a photograph of my grandfather in front of a nuclear test blast and, you know, mushroom cloud, everything. And I never really knew what it was or what it was about. I didn't know my grandfather. He died before I was born. So 
you know, you're, when you're a kid, you just kind of accept like whatever's weird in your environment. You don't think that much about it. And so just kind of incorporated that. And, and if I heard little bits of what that was about, I didn't question them much until I was in college. And I all of a sudden like started thinking about that photograph. And I was like, what was that? That's so that's so weird. What is that about? What is that history in my family? Who was my grandfather that I never knew? And so I started investigating that history and asking questions. And it led me to the history of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is the place where my grandfather lived and worked, the place where my dad grew up. It's in East Tennessee, sort of outside of Knoxville. And it's a weird city that was built in secret in 1943 to enrich uranium for the first atomic bomb, the bomb that ultimately was, was dropped on Hiroshima. And some 90, upwards of 90% of the people who lived there didn't know what they were doing. They were just doing a war job. It was, you know, super, super secret. It wasn't listed on area maps. It was all fenced. There was, you know, really stringent security measures. And up until, you know, Truman announces over the radio that Hiroshima has been bombed, that's the state of things. You know, people are just working hard for the war effort and doing their job, and they don't know what they're doing until until that announcement. And then later on, the city kind of go, undergoes a transformation because we go into the Cold War, and of course, nuclear weapons are no longer a secret. And so my grandfather stayed working there into the Cold War. So it's about that history. It's about what happens when secrecy is kind of embedded into a people and a place. It's about the intersection of the ways of, like, family secrets, mental illness, um, environmental contamination that often happens in these places, and the ways, the sort of harmful ways that secrecy um, hurts us emotionally, hurts the landscape, leads to devastation, you know, on the scale of nuclear weapons. Um, but it started from a very intimate place. Wow, that's, that is so deep, but I love it. <laughs> You know, I've kind of done that with my own history, family history with my mother was born in Belgium. And, you know, the, the awareness as things are implanted as you're a child, like I totally get that. You don't question it. It's just there. But then as we get older, we start to look at things and we start to question them. And it, you know, if you do that and you dig deep, it unfolds history. Yeah. And I love that you automatically have put that out there in your book. Um, and I'm curious about that evolution of starting to look at things and question things and awarenesses, like where do these awarenesses start to kind of open up in your mind? You said when you were in college, you um, started to look at that picture and what that meant and, you know, the hidden meaning behind it. And how did that kind of start evolving and what were your awarenesses as it evolved? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I guess I started kind of in on two prongs. I started talking to the family because immediately, you know, I just had questions for my dad, my aunts and uncles, you know, and I started to ask them, what's this all about? And they were able to sort of quickly fill in the, the basic picture, right? Which is that, okay, he worked on the Manhattan Project and then he worked in the Cold War on nuclear weapons. And this photograph was probably from a nuclear test site because he went out to visit to view nuclear tests. And so they were able to fill those in, but because they had also grown up immersed in it, just what you were talking about, um, they didn't necessarily, 
they knew what it was like to live in Oak Ridge, but they didn't necessarily know a whole lot about the history, right? Just like what you absorb in the story that the city tells about itself, which is different from the story that you might uncover if you dig in history books, you know? So I also just started reading everything I could about Oak Ridge, about the Manhattan Project, just like, you know, and when I first started off, it was like, what's in my college library? You know, what can I access? And then gradually kind of move out in circles. So go from books and family to like family friends to reaching out to the local historical society who was able to connect me with a guy who actually worked with my grandfather in the first, you know, in 1943, which was amazing. You know, he was able to give me a level of detail that I didn't dream that I could access, you know. Local historians are great, especially in smallish places like Oak Ridge, you know, who really know their stuff. So I've got a guy who, um, you know, when I have just like a weird question that I know I'm not going to find in a book, or maybe it's in a book, right? But who knows where? <laughs> I can email this guy and say, you know, tell me about like the shift change whistles that happened in Cold War, you know, in the 1950s, right? That people tell me about, like, what's what's the story of that? And he can answer that, those kinds of questions. So finding people on the ground has been really key to opening that up. And then in this era of like, you know, of social media, there's Facebook groups where, you know, people share memories of Oak Ridge. And so I've had places where I've connected to people, you know, by asking a question on Facebook and people are eager to talk about it. Um, and then I, you know, and then as I got deep into the history, I started to realize, oh, it's not just about Oak Ridge. It's not just about this one place where they made bombs. It's about the place they tested out in Nevada, outside of Las Vegas, the Nevada test site. It's about... Hiroshima, you know, in an obvious way. And so I did travel to those places and interview people there. And there's nothing like, I love book research, but there's also nothing like being in a place, you know, like the details that you see, the weird incongruencies, the, the people, the things people say to you or the things that you notice, you know, you can't get that from a book. And so there's like a layer of richness to being able to do immersive research like that. So was this like a college project or was it something you just went down the rabbit hole and kept going? Uh, all of the above. Um, okay. It started the very, very first iteration was like a college thesis, but um, I wouldn't say any of the words that were in that initial iteration like are still there. You know, I've rewritten them many times since and reconceptualized it. You know, it's been a meandering journey of I went to I went to grad school. I got my MFA, Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at University of Minnesota. So I had three three dedicated I years. Have, I have the same degree. Actually, oh, from, amazing! From um, Western Connecticut State University, but yeah. Oh, so cool! Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd love to hear more. Cool. About that. Yeah, so that was like a gift of you know time to write, mentors, writing peers. I got a, a bulk of a draft done there, and then spent years after that working on it while teaching, while doing fellowships, while doing freelance work, you know, as writers do, trying to piece things together, moving around to, to teach in various places. So, yeah, so I, it was, I guess, the labor of love that was in some, some periods supported by institutions, in some periods self-funded. Kindred spirits were kindred spirits. Yeah, sounds like I'm it. I'm still working on my two projects because I had two projects I 
kind of started back then and um, one of them is very similar timeline as far as like looking at my family history and the actual history that they lived through and the impact that it kind of drove me to understand so Mm, I'm wondering if you can tell me like tell me one thing that you learned about your family and its impact on you that is you directly tied to this research and understanding of the actual United States history mm. of this secret. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's such a good question. I need to, I love that question. I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest question that I was trying to sort of sort out with my family was this question around like mental illness that my grandfather was, um, had a bipolar diagnosis and alcoholism. I was trying to th- understand is it and in what ways is it related to his work and what ways isn't you know you can't always draw a direct connection and in what ways did that affect um his children and and subsequently me you know and what are the ways that silence kind of functioned to both protect him but also harm him and um ensure that maybe he didn't get the care that could have like made things easier for him. What I learned maybe that's was lovely and surprising and that I didn't necessarily expect is that this was a story that in some ways my family was eager to have uncovered, you know, even though it's very sensitive and I came at at it from a position where like this stuff wasn't talked about and I was sort of scared, you know, what are people going to say? How are people going to respond to me? And I do think there is hesitance and there's inherited silences around a lot of this stuff. But I've been very open the whole way about what I'm doing and what I'm interested in. And I've gotten nothing but support and um, positive feedback and even gratitude for this, even though it's been painful to uncover. So from my dad, from my aunt, people have said, wow, I'm so like, I'm learning so much about my dad from reading this. You know, I didn't know what he did. I didn't know things were that bad. I was able to get access to, I'm amazed, um, like mental health records, things like that. And I think I, and they helped me understand who he was and I have subsequently helped them understand who he was. Mm. Um, Mm. And I'm so grateful that they've been open to supporting me because I don't know if I could have done it without them. Mm -hmm. What did he do? What was his work? Yeah, good question. So it, it shifted somewhat, but in the beginning, he was a chemist. I mean, he was always a chemist, but by training. But he was sort of like a mid-level scientist, probably sort of, you know, knew he was working with uranium, but didn't know the whole, you know, scope of the project. And his specific role, this may be more detailed than you care, but basically to enrich the uranium, they had to put it through these machines and two sets of these machines called calutrons. And in between these machines had to be cleaned out because uranium would get stuck on the insides. And then when you clean it out, like with acid, right, then uranium is mixed with acid, but it's a very precious material. So he had to put it through a series of processes to like reclaim it and get it into a form that it could be fed back into the second set of machines. So that was his sort of precise role during the war. And then he worked on a lot of different things. He ultimately rose to a management level, so was less sort of hands on the other really big project he worked on during the Cold War was lithium 
isotope enrichment, which is an essential fuel component for hydrogen bombs. So, yeah, so definitely like a direct connection, you know, to nuclear weapons. Wow. So is there illness, physical illness that resulted from that work? Uh, For him? Yeah. Not that I can trace. No, I'm with him. I'm more tracing the psychological impact. There are definitely, you know, documented cases of worker health being impacted by by work in Oak Ridge around these processes. So that is something that existed there, but it's not a claim that I'm trying to make about my grandfather specifically. Mm-hmm. Why this history? So I'm, I'm someone who's really concerned with like what it means to live a good life, you know, and what it means to make sort of moral choices in a complicated world. And we live in a really complicated world where, you know, there's so many like compromises that, you know, that you have to make. My life is entangled with so many injustices, despite how hard I work, you know, to like, be a good person and live a good life. And so when I started to discover this direct way that my grandfather was involved in something that I find very disturbing, you know, in the destruction of Hiroshima and and everything else related to nuclear weapons, I was really disturbed by that. Um, and also, I really love my family. I love the place, you know, this countryside where my grandmother lived. And I don't think you can, like, throw just throw those things out, right? Like, we can't separate ourselves from our history and just be like, clean slate, you know, I have nothing to do with it. So for me, it was, you know, trying to understand, okay, like, how did, how did we get here? What are the choices that were available to my grandfather? Why did he make those choices? What effect did it have on him so I guess so it's ultimately yeah it's a question of trying to untangle I keep coming back to like questions about how to live a good life within the restrictions that were given have you gotten some clarity on that I mean yes and no uh I think it's probably going to be a lifelong question for me and I don't think there's a simple answer I think ultimately like the emotional journey that I went on took me from a place of focused on like an individual sense of guilt to thinking about collective responsibility, you know, to thinking about, yes, we should hold ourselves and people accountable, but maybe there's, maybe it's more important to like work collectively to you know resist the systems that that are oppressive and and change the patterns that allowed what happened in the past that was harmful to happen we're going to stop here for today but we'll pick up where we left off next week until then to find out more about emily and half-life of a secret be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.
Thank you.